We're looking at the subject today of a husband for Rebecca. We're back in Genesis chapter 24. You'll notice in this part of the chapter that Eliezer reasons for Rebecca to become Isaac's bride. Verse 28 tells us that Rebecca ran off to rehearse all that had happened with her and Eliezer at the well. And I think she was somewhat excited, and I say that because guess what? She just left Eliezer and his entourage at the well and uh, ran off. Verse 30, uh, to her brother Laban, uh, and that's where he he finds uh, Eliezer. He finds he's still standing there at the well, kind of like with egg on your face. What do I do now? She had a story to tell, and she wasted no time doing so. Laban, her brother, was no dummy. When he saw the gold nose ring and the bracelets Rebecca was wearing and heard her tale, he put two plus two together, and he concluded that Rebecca was being wooed as a possible bride for his uncle's son. I mean, who gives expensive gifts like that just to any girl on the street? So he figured it out. The fact that Laban conducted the inquiry shows that as Rebecca's brother, he came alongside of her. And he came alongside of her uh, to advise her, to protect her from uh, making any kind of careless or foolish decision. It is Laban who is checking out Eliezer's pitch for a bride for Isaac. Rebecca's father, Bethuel, and her mother, where are they? They're back at the homestead awaiting Eliezer's arrival. Being the good host that they were, Laban had Eliezer's cargo unloaded from the camels, and the animals were brought bedding and feed, and water was brought to the, wash the feet of the travelers. That's an oriental custom, verse 32. A meal was prepared for Eliezer and his men, But Eliezer refused to eat, saying, verse 33, I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. Laban wisely solicited Eliezer to speak his mind, so Eliezer rehearsed all the events which had led him to the town of Nahor, verse 10. And yes, yes, he was looking at Rebekah, as a potential bride for Isaac, because in the providence of God, of all the women who came out of the city to draw water, Rebekah passed Eliezer's test with flying colors. You remember the test. Verse 44, If a maiden comes out to draw water, and I say to her, Please let me drink a little water from your jar, and if she says to me, Drink, and I'll draw water for your camels too. Lord, let her be the one the Lord has chosen for my master's son. That was the test. See? When Eliezer finished his account, he tells us all to Laban and the household, only one thing remained. Would Rebekah's guardians, her father Bethuel, her mother, her brother Laban, would they agree to the marriage of Rebekah to Isaac? Look at verse 49. Now if you will show kindness and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me. So I may know which way to turn. 
Good news, bad news. I can't make any decision on this mission that I've been sent on by Abraham, my master, by Isaac. I cannot make any decision till me tell till you tell me what your decision is. You know, there's a lot to consider here when you think about this. Isaac may be looking for a bride, but is Rebecca looking for a husband? Hmm. God's providence seems to have smiled on the whole mission, but how would Bethuel and Laban and Rebekah's mother, how would they react to losing Rebekah to a family member who lived 700 miles away? Now, we think nothing of driving that distance to see family or friends, but for Rebekah's family, the distance was so prohibitive that it is very likely that they will never see her again. As far as I can find in Scripture, they never did. This is a tremendous decision. Verse 16 says that Rebekah was very beautiful, a virgin, no man had ever lain with her, which is the Bible's way of saying that she lived a morally pure life, and that she had never been previously married. All of which indicates that she met the holy qualifications for a godly bride. But, but, even with all of these pluses, the final decision to seal the marriage proposal had to rest with, with Rebecca herself. By the way, don't we see in this a biblical concept of arranged marriages as opposed as opposed to what we know goes on today in arranged marriages? In the Arab world, girls as young as 13 years old are conscripted by sheiks to become part of their harems. And the girls have no say. It's just the lust of the sheikhs that determines what's going to happen to them. And their parents gladly give them away because there's a price that they get, a dowry. But here, biblical arranged marriages, Rebecca has a say. Well, listen to the answer Laban and Bethuel gave to Eliezer, verse 15. This is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or another. Take her and go and let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. Now that's their answer to the working of God in leading Eliezer to their door. That's their answer. And it sounds so definitive, doesn't it? So final. It sounds like a done deal, we would say. But it's not a done deal. It is not a done deal because no one knows what Rebecca thinks about all of this. And what is more, once the family had a night to sleep on it, there is some reservation that they may have rushed things a bit. And so they begin to apply the breaks, verse 55. Well, you know, uh, uh, what about a 10-day uh, grace period here? <laughs> Uh, let's, let, let's think about this for, for another, a little more than a week, and, and then, then we'll, we'll, we'll make our, our final decision. 
That's not always bad, you know, in terms of uh, thinking things through. You go to apply for a loan at the bank, and there's a law now that they must give you, even though you signed all the papers for the mortgage, whatever, they must give you a three days to reconsider. Here's the 10-day reconsider is what they're being proposed. That brings us then to Rebecca's decision. Eliezer, upon hearing Bethuel and Laban's response, namely, uh, this is from the Lord, Rebekah is yours, take her and have her marry Isaac, he bowed down in reverence for the Lord's providence, verse 52. Next, he opened the treasure chests of good things he had brought as a dowry for the intended bride. Verse 53 says, gold and silver jewelry and clothing for Rebekah and costly gifts for Laban, the brother, and her mother. So everyone settled down around a good meal and then off for a night of sleep. Next morning, Eliezer is eager to hit the road and get on the way. Verse 54, but there's a hitch. Laban and Rebekah's mother begin to have hmm, second thoughts. Uh, maybe we have been a bit too hasty. They have agreed to a wedding plans for Rebekah without asking her what she thought. They have thrown a betrothal party with food and drink. They have accepted the gifts of the dowry. They have accepted this marriage. But, but, is this blind date for matrimony (laughs) acceptable to Rebecca? Is Rebecca willing to do this? This had happened so fast, I mean, so furious. Just maybe a 10-day cool-down period would be in order. But Eliezer is having none of that. It has been well over a month since he and his caravan had left Hebron to arrive in Ur. And he knows, he knows that Isaac and Abraham are waiting his return. Now, wait a minute. You guys agreed to the marriage, so why delay me? I have to be on my way. Verse 57. Then they said, well, let's call the girl and ask her about it. So they called Rebecca and they asked her. I can just see it. Will you go with this man? Probably did a hand gesture towards Eliezer. Will you go with this man? And she answered, I will go. Wow, mail order bride. Who would ever think? In God's house, a mail-order bride. Can you see how adventurous this was for Rebecca? Rebecca is referred to a number of times in this account as the girl. Verse 28, verse 57. A girl. Let's talk to the girl. Let's ask the girl. The Hebrew word here means a young female. King James Version says a damsel, that is, a marriageable young woman. Very likely, Rebecca was in her late teens, early 20s, when she married Isaac. Well, how old is Isaac? Chapter 25, verse 20 says he was 40 years old when he married Rebecca. Ooh, so even if she's 20, 
She's marrying a guy 20 years her senior. Age is not always an indication of maturity. There are young people who are wise beyond their years, and there are older people who, after many years, are yet fools who cannot make any wise and sensible decisions in life. Rebecca assessed all the possibilities, the pros, the cons, of traveling a distance to a land to marry a stranger. And she concluded, I will go. Well, maybe she wasn't getting any offers, we think. No, no, wait a minute here. Says she was very beautiful. Very beautiful. I think she would have been a catch for any of the guys of of the town. But she was prepared by God. Well, they heard, I will go. (laughs) And with that, decided, delay was no longer an option. And so, the goodbyes were said among the pronounced blessings from the Lord that she would be a mother of many, verse 60. Very important in Oriental societies. She was given her household maids as traveling companions, verse 66. They all mounted their camels and off they went back to Palestine. Now if it took them 30 days to get there, it's going to take them another 30 days to get back. So we're talking months here since Eliezer has been gone. So that brings us then to the third point in the outline, Isaac's anticipation for his bride and Rebekah's eagerness for her groom. Isaac was living in the Negev. Negev means just the southern part of Palestine. It's below Jerusalem. It's kind of desert-like. Verse 62. And one evening he went out into the field to meditate. The Hebrew word is to contemplate. I wonder what he's thinking about. Y'all thinking what he's thinking about? Maybe, I don't know, but maybe, just maybe, he was thinking of his upcoming marriage, if there was going to be a marriage. Is it going to happen if and when Eliezer returns with a bride? We don't know what he was thinking. What we do know is that he looked up over the field, verse 63, and there in the distance was this camel caravan approaching. Oh, wait a minute. Could this be his bride coming to meet him? Was that Eliezer on the lead camel? Verse 64. Rachel also looked up and she saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and she asked the servant, Who's that man in the field coming to meet us? Which tells us that once Isaac saw the camels coming, uh, he did figure out that it must be Eliezer and he was on his way. Eagerly he went out to greet the caravan, and just as eagerly, Rebecca dismounted her camel, covered her face with her veil, and ran toward Isaac. Two betrothed lovers racing towards their destiny with eager anticipation of beginning life together as a married couple and establishing their own family. There had been no time for courtship, no time to get to know one another. Their families were related, but that's as much as they knew. For all intents and purposes, as the song says, they were strangers in the night, exchanging glances, wondering in the light, what were the chances? 
We'd be sharing love before the night was through. Something in your eyes was so inviting. Something in your smile was so exciting. Something in my heart told me I must have you. Strangers in the night, two lonely people. We were strangers in the night up to the moment when we set our first tell low. Little did we know that love was just a glance away, a warm, embracing dance away. And ever since that night, we've been together. Lovers at first sight in love forever. It turned out so right for two strangers. Look at verse 66. Isaac married Rebekah, and so she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This had been an arranged marriage from the get-go, orchestrated on behalf of Isaac by his servant Eliezer, and on behalf of Rebekah by her brother Laban, and her father Bethuel. But it was God-ordained, and that is why it is so complete. The two strangers became one through marriage, and it is one of the most fascinating love stories in all of the Bible. Wonderful. All you unmarrieds out there can be thrilled at reading an account like this. Now, what are some of the lessons on God's superintendence of our lives? Because that's really what this is about. God orchestrating the things of life to bring about the things that come into our lives. What can we learn? Well, number one, I want you to see that God's providence is a safe guide. It is a safe guide of God's will. If it does not, here's the if, if it does not run contrary to God's revealed word. Let me say it again. God's providence is a safe guide to God's will if it does not run contrary to God's revealed word. As Christians, we do not believe in nor promote such things as lady luck, or chance, or one's fortune, or the draw of the cards, or the lucky stars, and many other irrational attempts to explain the seemingly unplanned for happenings of life. There is no such thing as the impersonal finger of fate to guide us. There's no fortune predicted in the pattern of the stars. There's no pathway for life chartered in the zodiac. Here's what the scripture says. In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Proverbs 16, verse 9. Or again, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Proverbs 19, verse 21. And you observe in both of those verses that nothing is said necessarily that the one making plans is a believer. No, it says, a man plans, but the Lord determines his steps. Many are the plans in a man's heart, 
but only God's purposes prevail. Keep that in mind when you think of evil men and how they prosper sometimes. And Solomon writes about that in Ecclesiastes. And to him it was a perplexing, perplexing thing that the wicked and the righteous seem to have good things happening to them. The wicked as well as the righteous. Now, when this interpretation, a man plans, but this is the outcome from God. When this superintendence of God is found in the believer's life, we call it providence. Providence. What is providence? Well, the basic etymology of the word means to provide. You can even see it in the word, providence. To provide. And it has to do with God manipulating circumstances to open a provision, a pathway for conduct. The caveat in all this is that providence must be tempered by the revealed will of God in his word. You say, what do you mean? Well, let me give an example. When David took a stroll at night on his roof, he saw Bathsheba taking a bath. This incited his lust for her, which led him into adultery. In his case, in his case, providence seemed to be, <laughs> it seemed to be smiling upon his immorality. I mean, think about this. He wasn't planning adultery. He was just out for an evening stroll. The woman thought that she was bathing in private. And so the circumstances might be, might be misconstrued to mean that God had made provision for David's adultery. That somehow providence was favoring David's lust. But this is an erroneous use of providence. In such cases, providence is a test of fidelity to God, not a green light from God to proceed. So how do you know that? Well, we know this to be the case in David's situation because God in his revealed will for mankind says, you shall not commit adultery. Exodus 20, verse 14. Or in verse 17, same chapter. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And Bathsheba was a married woman. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. In the case of Eliezer, concluding that Rebekah was God's choice of a bride for Isaac, many factors confirmed God's providential leading. The camel test, and we've talked about that. In answer to Eliezer's prayer, that the girl of God's choosing, right, would offer to water all of his thirsty camels without him having to ask her to do it. What's the likelihood of that? Ten camels, ten thirsty camels? Number two, the revelation from Rebecca's own mouth that she, of all the women going out to the well that day to draw water, was, in fact, Abraham's niece. Number three, that Rebecca's brother, her father, her mother, concluded, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Verse 50, an agreement among God-fearing parties. 
And number four, finally, Rebecca's willingness to travel back with Eliezer when all she had to do was say, no, I'm not going. And Eliezer would have been freed of his oath. But you see, God had indeed sent his angel beforehand, giving Eliezer success, finding the right bride for Isaac, verse 7, verse 40. So, let me say it this way. Providence with, with confirmation from God's word, you can use that to make decisions for life. But providence by itself, just circumstances by themselves, not necessarily a green light. Sometimes it's a stoplight. Sometimes it's a test. Are you going to be governed by the word of God or by circumstances? Number two. We need to learn that believers can be counted on for godly counsel and aid. I love this text. Rebecca's brother, along with her parents, played an integral part in discovering the godly course for Rebecca. When Rebecca reported that what had occurred at the well, we read, as soon as he, and that's Laban, as soon as Laban had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and had heard Rebekah tell what the man said to her, he went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed of the Lord, he said. Why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man went to the house, and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels, and water for him and his men to wash their feet. Verses 30 through 32. The gold jewelry was the tip-off to Laban that something serious was in the works concerning his sister. So he wasted no time to get to the bottom of it. It was also Laban, verse 33 and following, who sat patiently while Eliezer rehearsed all the events again of that afternoon from the time he met Rebekah to the time she ran home to tell the family what had happened. So it was the entire family who agreed to discover the mind of Rebecca in this whole matter. Will you go with this man? After they had heard all this stuff. This is more than family nosiness into Rebecca's business. No, the spiritual element is highlighted. Look at verse 50. This is from the Lord. And they're determining that it is from the Lord. And after a night to sleep on it, the family posed a 10-day wait period to see if this was something Rebecca really wanted to do. All the way through, they are protecting her interests. And my point is that they had her best interests in view. The psalmist puts it this way. Plans fail for lack of counsel. But with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 15, verse 22. Or again, perfume and incense bring joy to the heart and the pleasantness of one's friend springs from his earnest counsel. Proverbs 27, verse 9. The counsel of our friends can help us in making decisions. But, but, here it is, we must choose our friends wisely because the psalmist warns us, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. 
or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 1, the first two verses. And Paul warns us, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. Wrong friends, wrong friends can pull you down instead of build you up. They can give you wicked and self-seeking advice that has neither your good nor God's glory in view. So again I say, godly counsel is a plus for us as believers. We talked about morning, morning adult class, the fact that we can use the Bible to answer all of the problems in life our personal spiritual problems. If we have anger problem, if we're having marriage problems, if we're having whatever. But we don't always know where to go in the Bible to find that. And we don't always know how to use a concordance to find or we don't what I'm saying is we don't always know how to ask the right question. But sometimes you can talk to a Christian friend and they'll say, Oh yeah, that happened in my life and here's what the Lord showed me. And you're now into godly counsel that can help get you on the right path. So that's a great lesson to learn. I like the fact that Rebecca, yeah, the final decision is hers. I, I get it. I do. But Rebecca is listening to her brother. She's listening to mom. She's listening to dad. She wants to make the right decision for her life. This is monumental decision. should not be taken lightly. Number three, and this is wonderful too, God preserved Rebekah for Isaac. She was not snatched away by another suitor. I like that. God preserved her. She looks like a diamond in the rough, doesn't she? She's in a pagan land. She's in a godly house. I'm sure she had other suitors. God protected her. You ever do any people watching? I like to do this. Go to a mall sometime or another public place and just, just sit there and watch the people as they parade by. You can tell a lot. Overweight people, skinny people. Beautiful people, homely looking people. To you, <laughs> I have to qualify that. Intellectually astute people, eh, not too bright people. <laughs> Impeccably dressed people. And sloppy moppy people dressed in dirty t-shirts and grungy jeans. Well-mannered people and crude and lewd people. All kinds of people from every walk of life and every kind of background, but there they are, paired together in some of the most unlikely combinations imaginable. And we wonder, oh, I wonder how she ended up with him. In Rebecca's case, she is a young woman, and Isaac is 40 years old. That would almost be scandalous in our day, let alone theirs. And my point is this. God has a partner 
of the opposite sex waiting for each of you young men and young women. You can pray about it, and I say you should pray about it, but you should not fret about it. You should not fret about it. As you stick to godly principles, believer marrying believer, marrying within the faith, abstaining from immoral conduct, seeking the Lord's will in prayer, listening to the counsel of godly friends and relatives, God will bring his, cho his, chosen, his chosen mate into your life. This is not to say that our romances always lead to wise choices. <clears throat> but even if we are not as discerning as we should be, God has a way of leading us out of our self-inflicted heartaches through repentance and renewed faith. Some may have to look back on a failed marriage and admit that they rush into something without weighing all of the consequences. And now there is regret. Now there's heartache. But even so, it need not remain that way. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin any more than adultery or homosexuality is. With true repentance comes... God's genuine renewal and the renewal may lead to the godly mate that you passed over earlier in life. Marriage is serious. Never be in a rush. Especially as this is the case in dangerous times. Paul told the believers at Corinth, because of the present crisis... I think that it's good for you to remain as you are. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 26. If you're unmarried, just cool it. Just stay right there. What present crisis, we ask Paul? Well, Emperor Nero was arresting Christians and burning them on crosses as lanterns to illuminate the streets of Rome. And so Paul explains himself. What I mean, this is his words, what I mean, brothers, is this, that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none, and those who mourn as if they did not, and those who are happy as if they were not, and those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, and those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. And I would like to keep you from these concerns. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world and how he can please his wife. And he says the same thing about the wife. 1 Corinthians 7, 29 and 12. So what I'm saying here is that we need to look to God's lead if, if it's marriage, God has a soulmate that is waiting for you. Waiting for you. Don't be rushing into these things. Are we in a present crisis in America? I'm not just talking about a bad economy. I'm talking about world trouble, work trouble, people out of work. All kinds of problems going on with the family life. Christians under assault in America. Time to heed what Paul's warning here. And then lastly, I think we should learn that to love or not to love is a choice 
It is a choice and not simply a matter of feelings. Are you a little surprised at the statement in verse 67? So she, Rebecca, became Isaac's wife, and Isaac loved her. Oh, 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 really? How can this be? <laughs> he just met the girl. This is an arranged marriage implemented in a far country with Uncle Laban and his father and Abraham sending Eliezer. There has been no dating. There's been no conversation. There's been no letters in the mail. There's been no commendation by friends. Oh, yeah, I know this guy or I know this girl. As noted earlier, Rebecca and Isaac were utter strangers. Strangers. Well, Isaac can be said to have loved Rebecca because love is a choice as well as a feeling. This is why the Bible can command us to love one another, even our enemies. <laughs> Feelings cannot be commanded. You either feel love for someone or you don't, but no one can dictate that you are what you are to feel about someone else. But love can be, and it is commanded. Let me give someone to you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. It's not optional. It is obligatory. It's our duty. We're to love God. Or again, Deuteronomy 10, verse 19. You are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Oh, an alien, a stranger, I'm to love them. Or Paul says, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there are are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as you do love yourself. Romans 13, verse 9. Now we read stuff like that and we say, how is this possible? How can I love somebody if I don't feel love for them? Let me give you some examples of that. He who covers over an offense promotes love. But whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. Proverbs 17, verse 9. Gossip will destroy love, but if you cover it over, it promotes love. Again, what a man desires is unfailing love. Better to be poor than a, than a liar. Oh, oh. Proverbs 19, verse 22. A liar will destroy love by ruining the person's reputation. And in that case, it's better to be poor than known to be a liar. Jesus said this way, I tell you, love your enemy. Oh, love my enemy, love my enemy. Hmm. How am I supposed to have feelings of love for my enemy? 
He's out to hurt me. He's out to arrest me or my family or what have you. He's my enemy. And you're saying, love your enemy. How do we love an enemy when we don't have feelings of love? Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, verse 44 and following. Now, brethren, in all of these scriptures, a fuller definition of love is given than simply love feelings. Love is loving actions. Like covering over an offense when you could make a big deal about it like refusing to lie to or about someone, like praying for those who are out to get you and persecute you. Those are all love actions. And they can be commanded and are. But you ask this question, well, now wait a minute, wait a minute. Shouldn't people who marry have love Feelings for one another. I mean, who wants to be united for life to someone who is cold emotionally, dispassionate sexually, derogatory in speech, distant in affection, judgmental of every endeavor, poison-tongued every time they speak? Who wants that? It is true that none of this is a display of love. And if this is ongoing and relentless, love will not simply die. It will be murdered. Hatred is not love. John wrote it this way. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. 1 John 3 verse 15. So what is the answer if you are in a relationship where there is little love feelings? How can feelings of love be kindled? Can such animosity, such bitterness become romantic love? Jesus tells us, sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes and near no moth can destroy. For, here it is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Get it? Here's the principle. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Simply put, where you invest time, and money, and energy, and work, 
what you value, what you spend the lion's share of your time and effort on, that's your treasure, whatever it is. In Jesus' text, he's talking about treasure in heaven. But it could be a favorite activity, a new car that you have, a relationship, a spouse, a friend, a family member. Wherever that treasure is, whatever it is you treasure, that's where your love heart is going to be. And there is no shortcuts to this. None. Love feelings are not sustainable. If the only thing you got going for you is a handsome body or a shapely figure, because those things change with age or with illness. <laughs> As I, well, yeah. So if that's all I got going for me. I'm doomed. Love feelings are sustainable only through concerted love actions. So Isaac chose, he chose to love Rebecca. And she to love him. It was a marriage ordained in heaven, but confirmed by their own choices. So my charge to all of us is let us choose to love as well. Well, I don't get along with so-and-so. I don't particularly like that person's personality. Okay, then you got some work to do. You can choose to love them. And you can love them in ways that are practical. Say, well, they're my enemy. Then you should pray for those that persecute you and show them that kind of love. There's a lot more to the Bible than just pl pious platitudes, folks. There's real ways in which to live our lives. I love this story. It's a great love story. But it brings in all of the ingredients of love. They wade through it. They mentally argued out the various possibilities. Is God in this or not? And they chose to do what God had providentially opened for them. Our Lord, we pray and thank you for your word and thank you for your love. Guess what, Lord? It's just dawning on us this morning, perhaps, that your love for us was also a choice. Uh, does not the apostle say that we were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world? Ah, a chosen love. Were we lovely? Lovable? I think not. The scripture says we were sinners, hell-bent on defying you. Worse than that, Paul says, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Oh, you mean, Lord, that you love in the same way of choosing to love. And it's because of your electing love that we are in the family of God this day. And we are reminded what you told us as disciples, that we're to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is. We're to mimic your kind of love. I will not do it perfectly like you did and do. But neither are we to dismiss it and say, well, I'm not going to make any effort in that area. 
We need to make the effort. We need to love one another. And we need to choose to do it. This is a wonderful love story. I, I'm so appreciative that you found it in your heart to conclude this in Scripture. It did actually happen. It's a historical account, but uh, the spiritual lessons are vital for us and help us, Lord, to glean them and to believe them and to act upon them. We'll praise you for it in Christ's name.